On this episode of Riding the 3x3, Patrick Fetch and I dive into the Woj Bomb off the top of the show. Kimba Walker on the move from the Boston Celtics. Then we get into the Western Conference, all the ins and outs of the Utah Jazz Clippers series and what's going on with Chris Paul in Phoenix. Then lane number two, we have the Eastern Conference. Trey Young, the best player in the Philadelphia 76ers Hawks series, maybe. And then we have a game seven, just like we all hope for in the Nets Bucks series to close out the Eastern Conference semis over the next couple days. Lane three, going all Major League Baseball. Spider tack and ticky tack rules all in the news line as of this week. We got Garrett Cole comments causing a fervor and Tyler Glass now blaming his injury on the new crackdown of rules. We'll touch on all that along with the streaking Cincinnati Reds, 7-3 in their past 10, and playing some really great baseball with a gem of a prospect, playing great baseball of his own on the AA level, moving up to the AAA level. Touching on all that and more on this episode of Round the 3x3. You can catch us on Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get in the lane, number one. Ride the 3x3. Three three. We are live here on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Russ Hiltman, as always, joined by my co-host Patrick Fetch. We have so much to get into. We're going to skip the niceties today, and we'll leave all the chatter for the latest Woj Bomb that has dropped. We're going to be taking full-on NBA playoffs extravaganza. Pat and I have not been on a show together in about a week. We're going we're gonna to reconcile that for sure. Talk about all the latest happenings in the NBA, coach firings included, We'll uh, touch on Rick Carlisle, who was not fired, but rescinded his position as head coach of the Dallas Mavericks. The Oklahoma City Thunder have made a trade with the Boston Celtics. Touch on that right off the top. We got playoffs in the East, playoffs in the West, a game seven between the Brooklyn Nets and the Utah Jazz. And we have a couple teams on the brink of elimination in the Philadelphia 76ers and the Utah Jazz. But, Pat, my oh my, we start with the end of the Kimba Walker era in Boston. He has traded. News came down just 20 minutes ago, 9, 11 a.m. Eastern time. They are sending Kimba Walker in the number 16 overall pick in this year's draft, along with a 2025 second-round pick for Al Horford, Moses Brown, and a 2023 Oklahoma City second-round pick. A really, really brutal stretch of basketball they got from Kemba Walker after so much hope and dreams of a new Boston dynasty were having uh, were going down just two summers ago. Kemba never worked in Boston. You're exactly right, Russ. He was actually a disaster for a lot of the time he was there, to be quite honest. He only averaged what 13 points in their regular their postseason series a game. Uh, he was a little bit injured, I do believe though. But he just the contract too. This feels like they kind of just needed to take a bath with that whole situation. They just went to the shower and rinsed themselves off from just a, a bad day at the beach. And getting Al Horford back see, is tough to swallow. Like I, I don't really understand what they went for. And it was the market for Kemba that low. I mean, this is the introduction of Brad Stevens as an executive, right? Like we can mark this as his first trade. Fascinating first trade to come from Brad Stevens, who was just coaching Kemba, you know, less than a month ago down the court. So Clearly something that he saw within the locker room or I guess how he felt his ability to coach with that meant something. But what a weird trade and what a gross package that they got in return. So it allows them to basically get one year of relief from the big contract number owed between the two of these guys. Al Horford has two years left at $27 million and $26.5 million off of that just asinine four-year, $109 million contract that Elton Brand gave him to play alongside or to back up Joel Embiid. Like, what are we talking about? That was crazy when that happened a couple years ago. But Horford still raking in the checks and, like I said, has one less year than Kim Walker, who, like, it's just it's just really sad to see him fall down the, uh, the totem pole. And for a guy that was coming off his best season, in uh, in Charlotte a couple years ago, before going to the um, before going to the Boston Celtics, it is uh, it's it's a definite tough pill to swallow. So, like I said, it's uh, it's it's an interesting decision, but to me, Pat, I I think it's 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 the right decision for the Oklahoma City Thunder. 
obviously, because you don't really care what you're doing right now. You're just trying to keep stockpiling first round draft picks. I think they now have almost 20 first round draft picks up until 2027. Now it's just insane. They're going to have three firsts in this draft alone. So they'll have the ammunition to go up and get a guy if they uh, start to fall in love with him. But $70 million of relief, Pat, in terms of contract value, that's a lot of money. And I think I'm starting to come around a little bit more on the idea of what Stevens is going with here because I truly think this is the lowest, this is the low bar for Kimba Walker's value. I don't think there was much of a market out there at all for an aging small point guard that has injury issues and just doesn't seem to like he's going to have a, a post-prime type of stretch that we see from some of these all-star NBA players. At this rate in the NBA, especially with how the size of the best teams, Kemba at best might be like the fourth option on a championship team. And really, you're going to have to be able to completely hide him on the defensive side of the ball as well. So, I, I mean, I love what OKC is doing as a small market team, someone who's not going to be uber competitive for free agents. They're setting themselves up for 10 years of success into the future. You have to imagine they'll hit on at least a few of all those first round picks and they're really setting themselves up. Even if they have a great team, they're still going to be having picks down the line in 2027. So I guess this is the true tank roster. It seems like they're going with this year. If Kemba Walker is going to be leading this team out, no Chris Paul accidental playoff runs coming from this OKC team next year. Mm -hmm. And I was actually, I got to correct myself, Pat, both of uh, Kemba and Al Horford contracts end in 23, but Kemba's deal it's about $10 million more per year average annual value than uh, than Al Horford. So it's an interesting trade. It's the first big move from Brad Stevens. And it might just be a thinking of, hey, I've been the coach here. I've been a part of the evaluations. We haven't been able to lock down or nail the dart throw on any of these mid just after the lottery uh, first round picks. So you get a known commodity, you get a guy in Al Horford that can can be a valuable player. He can be a nice playmaking center in the right system. We've seen Brad Stevens use him well that way. But now the question remains, who's your point guard? Who's going to be the floor general of this Boston Celtics team? And all eyes kind of shift towards Marcus Smart in this scenario. Do they pull the trigger and gain more cap flexibility to maybe go after some other guy this offseason by uh, by by trading Marcus Smart like they just did with Kimball Walker, or do they hang on to the longest tenured Celtic on the roster right now? It's a lot of crazy stuff to uh, to talk about. Any any final thoughts, Pat, before we get in the playoffs? Yeah, well, Danny Ainge was seen as like gutless and heartless, right? Being able to almost build Belichick in the way he was able to move on from players. Uh, Brad Stevens opening up this money in a, in a year where Marcus Smart needs an extension for him to stay in Boston, I think will be fascinating if Brad Stevens decides not to extend Marcus Smart and not make him part of the future. He's such a heart of that team. Maybe his value, like his value won't be in the stats and the numbers, but more what he brings on the defensive side and his culture. But I think that'll be a very interesting test to how Brad Stevens is going to manage the Boston Celtics is the, the decision he makes with Marcus Smart. No doubt. No doubt. All right, let's get into the NBA playoffs. We'll start with the Western Conference, Pat. We have a massive game six tonight between the LA Clippers and the Utah Jazz. An unfortunate knee injury for Kawhi Leonard was playing 40-plus minutes a night. The trials of that Dallas Mavericks series clearly caught up to him. He was arguably the best player in this series or in this playoffs neck-and-neck neck with Kevin Durant throughout the first seven or eight games of the L.A. Clippers uh, postseason run. But he goes down with a knee injury, and we had playoff P show up, step up big time, 37-16-5 and and a 119-111 victory over the Utah Jazz, who seem to be slowing down at just the wrong time. I've lost three in a row. This offense sorely misses Mike Conley right now, Pat, because when Conley's not in the lineup, they have to put Jordan Clarkson or Joe Engels in the starting lineup, and that just throws off the entire balance of their roster construction. This team feasted on second units throughout the regular season with that nasty guard tandem of Ingles and Clarkson being able to control everything and really outperform any other guard duo on the other side from the opposing team's bench. All of that has kind of cascaded and fell down the wayside as they blew a 2-0 lead and now find themselves in a 3-2 hole to the L.A. Clippers, who 
or trying to become, Pat, the first team in NBA history to go down 0-2 in back-to-back series and come back as the victors. It's been crazy what the Clippers have done, but you made a great point about the Jazz. And I don't know if this series is more about the Jazz or the Clippers right now, but it will be – Kawhi coming back is going to be huge for the Clippers moving forward in winning this. But there's two different sort of paths to the championship these days. I feel like I've seen you can go the super team route where you're starting five or you're, you're finishing five is just so dominant that it gets you through games. Or you go the way of depth, which if you look at what the Raptors did, the Raptors played with a lot of depth when they went and won the championship with Kawhi. And I'm going to talk about when we get to the Hawks, but – the Jazz ability to play seven deep, and especially seven deep that are all playmakers, shoot off the dribble, can dribble and pass and shoot, do everything in a game and not be so, I guess, specified in their roles as just these you know, definite role players. So I think you made a great point about Conley being out. Conley hasn't been great to his number or his you know contract number and his value. He hasn't been superb in any way. But he definitely adds extremely valuable amounts of depth. And especially when you can push those guys into the second unit and dominate in the second unit, that's huge. And we've seen that in a number of these games in the playoffs this year. So I think you make a great point about the Jazz missing out on Conley, even though it doesn't feel like that. I don't I don't know how the Jazz are going to take these last two. Donovan Mitchell is going to have to rise to the occasion. We're going to have to see, I guess, you know, a second recoming of him. He did it his rookie year. He was fantastic in the small amounts he was there, but He's going to have to really, really ascend if they're going to make it past the Clippers this round. It's not like he hasn't been great either. He's been fantastic throughout this series, has been the entire offense hub for the Utah Jazz. And I mentioned the issues Mike Conley presents when he's not in the lineup on offense. On defense, I don't think Mike Conley can fix what is ailing the Utah Jazz. The Clippers in the series have posted 130.9 offensive rating over the past three games, they have been unstoppable in terms of getting to their spots on any on any uh, section of the floor, bringing Rudy Gobert out from that paint area. They're getting him mobile. They're getting him moving to all three levels of the defense, and that's really affecting the Jazz's ability to not only defend the rim, but defend any area of the floor. When your best wing defender is Royce O'Neal sitting at about 6'4", 220, like it's just it's, it's not going to be enough to slow down even the likes of Paul George, Marcus Morris, and Reggie Jackson, who we've seen come and just light things up in this series. He's been a revelation for the Utah Jazz. So the fact that guys like Terrence Mann are out there like asserting their will on offense and playing serious, tough basketball, I think is a real issue for the Utah Jazz. And and like they have to play Rudy Gobert almost the entire game. Like when the Jazz play Ersan Ilyasova or Derek Favors, it's just an abject disaster. They're getting outscored by over 15 points per per 100 possessions with Derek Favors on the floor. There just doesn't seem to be a lot of concrete fixes for this team unless Mike Conley uh, gets back into the game or gets back into the lineup for game six. And I'll go ahead and check his status as you rebuttal here. But like I said in my evaluation of this series before it all started, about two weeks ago, I just never thought the Jazz had enough wing defense to be able to keep the Clippers from attacking Rudy Gobert in the pick and roll at the top of the key. The Clippers haven't been extremely impressive to me. I don't know what 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 it is, but I think you make a great point. Their wing presence, their size, and their ability on the wing just to make open contested or to make contested shots, to make off the dribble shots has been really really impressive. It's been sort of like a lot of hero ball between all of them. Everyone's had to sort of pick their moments within the game. And I just went back and looked at the box scores. The Jazz are getting absolutely nothing from their bench. If they could get anything other than Jordan Clarkson off their bench, they would be right in the series. They probably have already won this series. But the fact that the Clippers can play their starting five and really just make it, you know, starting five on starting five game, the second units just have not mattered. And the Clippers' second unit is atrocious as well. And so it speaks to how bad just the Jazz have been. And, Jordan Clarkson has been the only the only scoring option off the bench. And so they need that to change. They need Conley to get back just to get him 10 more points on the box score to help just relieve the rest of the lineup. And you, they, the fact that they don't have any depth behind Gobert 
is really tough. You even look at like what Boogie Cousins and Dwight Howard and uh, Drummond did on their respective teams as backup centers. I think they played huge, massive roles for their teams. And uh, the, the Jazz just not having that second option behind Gobert is definitely, definitely coming back to bite them right now. And he's going to be exhausted just like Embiid going down the line, it feels like. Right. He's playing 40 plus minutes a night. He's just not getting any help, getting no solid backup minutes. Like you mentioned, Derek Favors that last game, zero points, one rebound, one steal, a minus seven overall in six minutes of play. Like it's a great point, Pat. They got to find more production out of their bench. A, uh, a unit that the Clippers haven't necessarily thrived off of in this series, but when they needed Luke Kennard to go out there and hit some buckets, he's done it. He, he played 20 minutes in game five, hit a couple threes. Patrick Beverly has been able to play some tough junkyard defense on the outside. And funny enough, Rajan Rondo hasn't really played at all in this series, as we've seen a lot more Nick Batum and Reggie Jackson, along with Terrence Mann. That trio has been uh, been the skeleton key for Ty Lue as he went more towards them in games three and four, and it's really helped them get the job done. Looking at the rest of the West, Pat, we obviously have the Phoenix Suns awaiting the winner of this game. Chris Paul in the health and safety protocols. We do not know whether or not he will be missing multiple games or if it's just going to be the likelihood of missing game one. But we'll probably preview that series once we get closer to it. Closing out the Western Conference before we get into the tight, juicy series in the East, Luka Doncic no longer has a coach. Rick Carlisle, amidst all of the Dallas Mavericks – controversy and fervor based off of the athletic article we saw uh released this week has stepped down from his role he said quote to adrian wozniarowski of espn that it was entirely his decision and makes me think pat that to turn down or to step away from a job where you can coach one of the top five players in the world it's got to make me think he's got a very juicy situation lined up elsewhere maybe in boston maybe in Milwaukee, if that one were to open up, there are uh, some serious, serious candidates for solid coaching jobs. And even the New Orleans Pelicans, who got rid of Stan, Pat, they fired Sam Van Gundy. Praise Jeebus. They got rid of the worst defensive coach in the NBA. My Lord, that was an abject disaster, that experiment. But I'm not going to leave my guy David Griffin off the hook there as I uh, as I go on this little New Orleans Pelicans tangent. That roster was horrid, Pat. Steven Adams. Did anyone in your life or do you know any human being that thought Steven Adams trading for him and bringing him to New Orleans Pelicans was a smart decision to trade Drew Holiday and replace Drew Holiday with Eric Bledsoe? That was a smart decision to surround your young superstar talents with a terrible bottom 10 point guard and Eric Bledsoe. Horrible job by David Griffin. And it's tending to be a horrible job by Mark Cuban. It's trending that way now that he has lost his GM, Donnie Nelson, of over two decades and his head coach, Rick Carlisle, of over a decade. Sometimes it's good to clean house and get new voices in the room, but that's a little eerie and a little odd to see both those guys get out of there within one week. That's a great point that you made up. I didn't realize how long both Carlisle and Nelson had been with the Mavs, and so I guess it will be extremely interesting to see where Mark Cuban goes with this because I was just about to say, why wouldn't it be a great job? Luca has to be pretty much the number one value guy to want to go coach his age, how electric he's been, his maturity at his age. I would think most coaches would almost pick him first. If you had to start a draft going into the future. And Mark Cuban does seem like an extremely supportive owner, at least, you know, an active owner. He gives you a lot of freedom. It feels like, you know, it seems like he is, would be someone you would enjoy working with or for. I, I I will be fascinated. I don't know who's on the short name of list that would really. I know Luca likes Jamal Mosley, which is one of the assistant coaches. He's kind of like his shooting coach, you know, the classic cliche bench coach that's out there with him at the after the losses when he's getting the free throws up, all that stuff. You know how those bonds build, and maybe a Chauncey Billups. I don't know, Pat. They I feel like they got to get a coach who will a check Luca. Be like, hey, Luca, we need you to uh, get in shape, buddy. We need you to be in shape. We need you to not be tired and losing some of your amazing skills in the fourth quarter like he has in the uh, backstretch of those Clipper playoff games. And then, two, we're paying Chris Stapp's Porzingis over $100 million over the next three years. If I'm Mark Cuban, the next head coach is going to be making sure Chris Stapp's Porzingis is involved in the offense. He's not going to be some Kevin Love 
Chris Bosh, corner three-point shooter the entire game that I'm going to pay $100 million to as a seven-footer with the skills that he has over the next three years. That's not happening. Chris Porzingis needs to be featured in this offense, and he needs to be featured to make this team work well as a whole. Because we know for a fact, Pat, you cannot win an NBA championship playing James Harden ball. It's never happened. I don't see it working ever. You have to play team basketball at some point somehow in the playoffs. And Chris Porzingis is going to have to be a part of that if the Mavs are going to reach their ceiling over the next three years. I think that's a great point. Someone to check Luca. I think you, you, you can go two ways with it, right? You get the bench guy, the assistant who's been there, who's comfortable with Luca, or you bring some large name in, like a Jason Kidd or uh, like Chauncey Phillips. Phillips. Some, yeah. Somebody who's been there, understands the point guard moment, understands maybe the ego that Luca is dealing with or you know developing, and someone who can help guide him through that. Because I think I think we did see some shades of maybe immaturity or like selfishness. Uh, maybe just like some tunnel vision from Luca and some of those plays down the stretch where he come off the pick and roll and literally did not matter what was happening in front of him. He was going to take a step back three, you know, from 27 feet. So, right. I and think- just think like put yourself in Chris Stapps' shoes. You're the corner all game long. You're not getting featured all on offense. You're barely touching the basketball. And then you get all of the crap post game when the team loses and you get all the crap post game. So everybody's saying, oh, he's so washed, he's so overrated, when you didn't even get featured the entire time. So I've been a part of that a little bit, and I feel for Chris Stapps Porzingis in that sense, where it just never felt like it was any part of the offense was supposed to go around Chris Stapps. And then when you think about just all the other players as well, it's very difficult to just be a defensive stalwart, sit around the three-point line, do a bunch of cuts, set a bunch of screens, and never touch the basketball. We're all human beings here. All these guys want to eat a little bit, and it's time for Luka Doncic to follow in his uh, his man Trey Young's footsteps, Pat. We were destroying the Atlanta Hawks for giving up Trey Young, trading him to the Dallas Mavericks, uh, trading Luka Doncic to the Dallas Mavericks, and bringing back Trey Young along with uh, the picks that became DeAndre Hunter. And who's that? Cam Reddish? Cam Reddish, not a big factor in this uh, playoffs run as we get into lane number two in the East. But my, oh my. Is Trey Young a factor, Pat? He's been the best player in this series as we talk about the ensuing game five tonight, between, or excuse me, game six tonight between the 76ers and the Atlanta Hawks. Trey Young has been unbelievable, Pat. I, I, I can't say enough good things about the way he has tested and overcome all of this mental fortitude. He's had to go through these series as an underdog, as the villain, quote unquote. All he's done so far. Is just be spectacular. Knew that he had didn't have the scoring acumen, didn't have the scoring touch in game five, but decided to turn on the old Steve Nash, Jason Kidd lights. Went for 30, or excuse me, 39 points on 10 of 23 shots. So a little inefficient, but the assists are what stood out, Pat. Seven assists in the game. He was finding and hitting his spots at the right time, coming off of an 18 assist game in game number four, which the Atlanta Hawks have trailed in the past two games by double digits in both, and they overcame a 26-point deficit in Game 5, Pat. That's the third biggest blown lead in the past 25 postseasons, and we are just seeing a total collapse of epic performance or epic proportions from this 76ers team after Joel Embiid seemingly is hitting the wall with that torn meniscus and not having enough juice to get it done in crutch time. He has not been the clutch time scorer that the 76ers have needed him to be throughout these playoffs like he was in the regular season. They haven't gotten it from Ben Simmons, who's taken zero shots in the past two fourth quarters, and they haven't gotten it from our guy, Mr. 150 million, baby. Oh, my. Tobias Harris goes 2 of 11 in game five after playing pretty decent over the first uh, first four games of the series. Averaged 20 points on 59% shooting. But – to go two of 11 and to take less than seven shots in clutch time in this entire series, Pat, what are we paying Tobias Harris for if he's not going to be the crunch time go to break you down off the dribble wing that we paid him $150 million for? What the hell is going on out here? Well, first off, I'm going to start with giving myself a nice little pat on the back again because I tried to tell you all that the Hawks are going to be good from the beginning of the season. I knew Trey Young was going to take a step up. I didn't know they would be this good, even though 
I do think this series is much more about the Sixers than the Hawks, but let's give the Hawks the credit they deserve. I mean, I love the depth. I think the Hawks might be literally the most complete team left in some regards. The fact that They're they the can – them in the box. Well, that's that is the most important part, right? But the fact that they right. can bring Lou Will, this season, for sure. Yeah, they, they can bring Gallinari, who's got great size and can play every part of the offensive game off the bench. They can bring Lou Will, who's still an absolute sniper off the bench and get points whenever they need it. Solomon Hills played great defense. Uh Okongwu has been great on the defensive end too, being like a good energy guy when he's in. Uh, and then the fact that everybody on their team can dribble, can play make, other than Capella, who plays such a specific role, but Bogdanovich, Trey Young, Collins, Hoyter has had his moments. They've all just been fantastic. Collins has been incredible. The fact that he's been able to compete the way that he has on the defensive end and do what he has offensively. Everything about the Hawks, they're playing with heart, they're playing with spirit, playing together. Nate McMillan has to deserve so much credit for bringing this team back from where they were under Lloyd Pierce. Uh, all the credit to the Hawks. Absolutely love what I'm seeing from them. But what in what the hell is going on in Philadelphia? What is happening? Ben Simmons is four for fourteen from the line. You can't you can't have it. We cannot win with that Ben Simmons. Remember Doc, me, but Pat, remember Doc Rivers said he was fine if with Ben Simmons being out there in crunch time to take free throws if he made one of two. Well, well, Doc, he's not even making one or two, but it might be time to reassess that uh, that uh, that strategy. I mean, he just needs to play like power forward for this team. Like, they need to get a true point guard because it's absolutely insane that he he doesn't take didn't take a three. He can't take threes. He can't do anything. It's it's mind boggling how poor he is on the offensive side. It's hysterical to watch the fans in Philadelphia react to it. And yeah, and B has hit, to- did you see him hit the? Uh, the went uh, go. He went two for two at one point from the line during Game Five, and the fans they celebrated like they had won the finals. It's like, come they on, threw- Philly, what are you doing? That's not going to help your guy out at the line <laughs> by celebrating like that. Come on, it's awful. And I was I was ready to come back on here and champion Tobias Harris, saying Tobias. I mean, really, Tobias is the key. Whether this team is just a laughing stock and a joke or the NBA champions this year, he is the absolute key. He makes way too much money, but he's got great size he's really good offensively i mean he can play every part of it he can hit the three he can go off the dribble he just needs to put it all together they should honestly be giving him the ball let tobias harris be bringing the ball up let ben simmons be the picker and then let Joel Embiid be on his own island on the other side and let tobias harris really like run this team because when ben simmons brings the ball down and they can just put all five guys into the paint and around Embiid because they know Ben Simmons is just worthless with the basketball in his hands. It, it makes it so much easier to defend the 76ers. And there's really just no excuse for the Sixers not to win this series. You see them absolutely dominate these games into the third quarter. Then Embiid runs out of gas. Literally, it, they need oxen tanks. You might as well get a crutches for him up and down the court. It's just awful. It's it it's just sucks, It just sucks that the, that the meniscus thing happened. And I, I, I tip my cap to Joel Embiid. <laughs> I'm, re- I'm looking at this uh, article and I see Jay Will quote 76ers should charge 34.99 for masterclass on how to blow leads. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll give Jay Will that was good. That was good from Jay Will. But yes, it's been that bad for Philadelphia, and I think it's been blowing. They've been blowing leads like this because of Joe Embiid's injury in large part. Like to play through a torn meniscus, that is really gutting things out. And he's a guy that was. A high, mm-hmm. high usage player in crunch time situations throughout the regular season, Pat. 39% of his team's plays in crunch time went through Joel Embiid, according to NBA Advanced Stats. That was 11th among um, all players who saw action in 10 crunch time games this season. So the fact that Embiid has made just one of his six shot attempts in crunch time, including a miss right at the rim to win the game in the, in the fourth contest – just a couple of nights ago, it just shows you how much this injury is really zapping of him. Because like you said, you wish that he had more energy, but the fact that that injury is there, it just takes that much more effort to be able to get to the baseline player that he was before and be able to be out there for his team. So really tough situation for the 76ers who at this point, if they go down in six games to the Atlanta Hawks or eventually lose this series at all, you really got to assess, do we keep Ben Simmons? Can we keep Ben Simmons here? How much of buyer's remorse or regret, it's not buyer's remorse actually because they didn't buy, how much regret is Daryl Morey going to have by not sending Ben Simmons 
to Houston for James Harden, who's ultimately gimpy in his own right. We're about to get to that series in just a moment. But, man, what could have been and how much more free-flowing this offense could have looked had they just shipped out Ben Simmons, who at this point of his career, Pat, it's like, are you working that hard on your jump shot? Are you actually doing it? Because we don't see it in the game, so how the hell am I supposed to believe you? When are you going to become the top-tier player that you have the potential to be? Because right now, it's not happening. Ben Simmons, everybody's like, oh, he's a top 20, top 25 player. Ben Simmons isn't even a top 35 player right now, especially in in a playoff scenario where you just cannot trust him in crunch time. He is a total gravity suck in the worst kind of way, and it's a huge issue for the – at, or excuse me, for the Philadelphia 76ers as them and Doc Rivers try to navigate another blown lead for their head coach who uh, just did that last year. Pat just blew the old, uh, just blew the old two uh, or three, one lead to the Denver Nuggets in the Western Conference semifinals. So tough, tough look for the 76ers. We'll see if they can think, bounce back in game number six. Yeah. One last on this. I mean, playing on tour miss is tough enough, especially when you're seven, three, 315 pounds. And the fact that, <laughs> In fact, that Joel Embiid, when they were down three with 10 seconds left, was the one with the ball at the top of the key, looking like he was about to attempt some step back between the legs three to try to get them back into the game. He, it's insane how much pressure he has to do every part of that team. And I think that Ben Simmons can be a, a huge part of a championship team. They just need to reimagine his role on that roster and in that lineup. He's just not the starting point guard. He's an elite defender still. He can do so much with the ball, but... He's he he can't handle the ball every session down the court. It's just I think like he has to be on a team where he does that and has shooters all around him. Because the fact that Dwight Howard, when Dwight Howard is in these these games with Ben Simmons, (laughs) it's a total disaster. They're like a G League team. They got two guys who definitively cannot shoot the ball outside of five feet from the rim. And in today's modern NBA, Pat, you and I both know that's a death sentence. And it's a it's what the only real bugaboo, the only real barb I'll throw towards. Daryl Morey in terms of the way he set up this team because that has really hurt their chances in, in terms of the bench unit that way. But the fact that he's got Seth Curry has been a godsend for this team because without Seth Curry, I don't know if they make it out of the first round. Like he has been a skeleton key for their offense in so many different ways. It just goes to show you how important shooting is around these guys. And when there's only five players on the court and Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid have to take up two of those starting positions, you're just not getting very solid clutch floor spacing out of those roles a team that had very clutch floor spacing out of their arguably second or third best player in a pivotal game six to tie the series up and force it to game brooklyn chris middleton i oh my Giannis Antetokounmpo felt the flamethrower was cooking early and he decided to fully embrace the kickouts on the downhill drive to the rim Giannis would go towards it chris middleton would be hanging back at the top of the key Bing, bang, boom, ping, pong, splash, triple all night long as he goes 11 for 16 from the floor, 38 points to eclipse Kevin Durant's 32 on 15 of 30. Pat, this to me was kind of a easy one to predict. I was I was really thinking about laying the hog on the Milwaukee Bucks just at home, this kind of scenario, back against the wall, Giannis and Chris Middleton with the season on the line. They get the job done and a 15-point blowout victory. Now we get the Game 7 that we all wanted out of this great, great matchup in the Eastern semifinals. The Bucks remind me so much of the Houston Rockets with James Harden under Dale Murray, and I don't love it. I think the Bucks are boring. They only have like one way to play the game, and it's just a, a Giannis transition or Giannis pick and roll or him just running into somebody like a fullback and getting fouls. I just think the way that they play is boring. And I think this is an incredibly fascinating series. And I think it's been very fun to root for the super team, you know, and Kevin Durant watching him pretty much have to conquer this Bucks team all by himself. And it's been absolutely a pleasure to watch. It's been so much fun, but I don't love the way the Bucks play basketball. I don't think this is a championship way to win games when you can only play at sort of one speed and you're relying on Chris Middleton, who's he's a great player, fine, but he's not a championship winner. He's not going to be the best offensive player on a championship team, and that's what they're hoping for right now. They need him to be uber efficient and make shots off the dribble and do all of these things, and they just don't have enough help. And I, I hate the way that Giannis is just – 
uh, archetype as a player dominates the whole aesthetic of this Bucks team and everything that they do. I think they could be so much more creative and I'm not looking forward to seeing them move on if they are. Uh, like luckily for them, they are they are healthy. The Nets and the Sixers, who would probably be the biggest challenge, are not healthy. I guess I wouldn't I wouldn't push over the Hawks the way that they're playing. So it'll be it'll be an awesome game seven. It's going to be a game seven for KD's legacy for sure. After the sort of legacy game he put up in game five, if he's able to go out there conquer in game seven and put Giannis down, well, I'd love to hear your opinions on the Bucks. Do you really think that this? they need another piece or just like a reimagining of what they do to play basketball. Because I just see the Rockets in them. I, I see a team that's going to come up short in a game seven because they're just too predictable. Uh, I don't, I, I have no read on this game, Pat. I would not want to bet against Kevin Durant and I, I wouldn't want to bet against the way Chris Middleton and Giannis are playing right now. So I think it's a total coin flip in terms of who wins this game, especially like James Harden is the key to this one. I, I said in our group chat, over-under for Harden points in game six was 16. I was like, this has got to be the lowest over-under point total for a James Harden prop in like a decade because the guy is always out there putting up 25, 30 points a game. And what does he do, Pat? He goes and hits it right on the number with 16 points, only nine field goal attempts. And it was clear I knew it and James Harden knew it. The guy doesn't have any lift in his legs. They're playing him 40 minutes on a bum hamstring. And especially in the second half, once he had to sit down for a few minutes, and not necessarily have that thing warmed up in game action, then it became really apparent. So if this is the James Harden that they're going to get for the rest of the series or for the, for game seven, then I think it's going to be very difficult for them to win that game, especially because not only does he not have the lateral movement or the downhill explosiveness to get to that floater or get to those lobs in the 10 to 15 foot area of that paint, but he doesn't have the side to side ability with that hamstring to keep up with a guy like Chris Middleton on the wing, who they got him in pick and rolls and different matchups. Thank God, Pat, all night long, when they didn't do it at all in the historic Game 5 flamethrower from Kevin Durant. They refused to put James Harden in any offensive actions, and that was ultimately their death knell. It might be their death knell in the series after they could have closed it out in five and the job at home in Milwaukee in Game 6. So James Harden to me. What does that hamstring look like? What does the lift look like in game seven? I'll be monitoring that for the live line. Because if that homie comes out and starts cashing triples, old step back style with a little swish off the uh, held uh, held follow through, then we're going all the way in on the uh, on the Brooklyn Nets. But they need James Harden. They need him desperately because, like I said, it's just there's not much else after that. Blake Griffin's looking like Draymond Green out there. The guy's hitting the side of the backboard, refusing to take shots. Goes one for four from the three-point line. Jeff Green came right back down to earth after the 27-point performance in game five. And then this bench, there's just nothing really there at all. Mike James gets four minutes. They get, I mean, you got they went through their entire bench pat. No one got more than six minutes besides um Landry Shamit, who put in a two-point performance minus 10. So, like, if that's what they're gonna get out of this bench, then yes, the Milwaukee Bucks should win game seven after. They were seemingly the lower depth team when Kyrie Irving was still on the floor because they did not have the defensive uh, abilities of Dante DiVincenzo, just the solid two-way play that the Villanova alum brings to the floor. But so far, the injury tides have turned since then. And the Milwaukee Bucks, I'd say, should be like maybe one and a half, two-point favorites in this game. But to me, it's pretty much a toss-up. And that's exactly what we look see out of a series like this. I want to give Steve Nash a whole bunch of credit, though, because it feels like he was definitely the right guy for this job. The fact that he's been able to get Blake Griffin to play the way you have. I mean, you said he, Blake Griffin looks like Draymond Green. I thought you were giving him a compliment because I'm like, Blake Griffin's been awesome. He's been all over yeah, the place. Like Draymond's been good, but he can't shoot. Like sure. Griffin's <laughs> been passing well. He's been running the offense well at the top of the key. Like they don't have a point guard. So Blake's kind of yeah. just been filling that role, which I think he's done a good job of. And on top of that, James Harden, even what they're getting from him is still awesome. I mean, just the fact that his presence was on the court in game five was huge for the way that Kevin Durant was able to play. I do think. And he had self-awareness. Like he didn't take 18 right. shots. Yeah. yeah. And they, I mean, if I'm the Bucks, you should be like a, a playground bully right now and picking on the kid who just fell and hurt his leg. Like they should be putting James Harden in a pick and roll literally until he has to take himself out of the game. There should be not a single defensive play in game seven where James Harden isn't guarding the ball. If I'm the bucks, like 
it, you have if he's going to be on the court, you have to make him defend. You have to make him test that hamstring. Like, I'm literally going to make James Harden hurt himself or take him safe, take himself out of the game in Game Seven because that's how you win. He's terrible on defense already. Plus, he's compromised. Plus, you need him off the court just because his presence alone helps run that offense so much more cohesively. And so, if, if I'm Drew Holiday, I'm hunting him. If I'm Giannis, I'm hunting him. Like, you're going to put him in the post. I'm just going to back him down, make him foul me, do whatever. Because, I mean, that's how you're going to have to win this game. And the fact that Steve Nash has told me so much about James Harden, though, he's been pretty good defensively, honestly. He's gotten a few steals. He's put his nose in. He's sort of been at the right place. I do think it's been really cool to see him sort of just play at a different pace as a different player because the James Harden I got so tired of the James Harden we had to watch in Houston for years so it's been fun it's been fun just to see I guess a gutty performance from him but you're right I mean if they can get 20 out of Harden this game will be a Nets win if they get less than 10 out of Harden the Bucks have no excuse not to win uh, our buddy Tristan was telling me about uh I think are you part of are you on the softball team that they're all part of yes the uh I, I, week, I don't know though. if you were at the game on on Wednesday the double header but he was telling me you guys uh Face the best team in the league, seven and one versus uh, you guys. Uh, I think you guys are, are struggling a little bit this year. We won't, we won't, we won't bring the dirty laundry out on the show. <laughs> but the uh, he said that your guys' best player had a hammy injury, and you decide to stick him in right field, thinking, all right, right field, a lot of right-handed hitters, it's not gonna be a lot of oppo shots out there. And then Tristan drops the uh, nugget on me that the team knew how to directionally hit, so uh, <laughs> they just kind of a, they just ended up thinking that the worst player on the team was actually in right field, when in reality. The best player on the team just had a hammy injury. So that's the kind of strategy that the Brooklyn Nets need to take towards, uh, or excuse me, the Milwaukee Bucks need to take in this game seven. As we get into the baseball chatter here in lane number three, Pat, sticky stuff issues for Major League Baseball. The crackdown is about to begin, and we are going to see some uh, some differences. We've already seen some differences. Our guy Tyler Glass now uh, claiming that his inability to use the sunscreen rosin mixture, I'm, assuming, I'm guessing is what he was using, to um, loosen up his grip a little bit and not make it as tight. He said because he had to stop using that, he had forced his fingers to tighten up more on the baseball, and he said he's never felt like pain in muscles that he didn't know he had before. Once he started doing that, it caused UCL. Um, it caused a UCL injury, and now Tyler Glass now is on the shelf for an extended period of time. We don't know how long. All of this obviously coming amidst the Garrett Cole comments that Pat tuned us into last week. So very weird situation, Pat. And to me, I understand what Major League Baseball is doing here. You want to make sure that there's as even a playing field as possible. But they've already screwed this up wholeheartedly because the playing field will not be even for the rest of the season because we've played two months of baseball with ticky-tack stuff. And now we're going to play four months of baseball plus the whole playoffs and World Series without it. What are we doing here? Why does Major League Baseball always get in its own way? That's exactly what it is. It's Major League Baseball just handling this as poorly as could be from the start. I mean, so it's just a, it's not a pattern of the game, right? So when stat cast and all that gets introduced and spin rate becomes this big topic, well, players are going to do what they can in order to get the best spin rate if it's going to be evaluated for how they're going to get paid, right? So if there are ways that they can enhance their spin rate, increase and cheat a little bit, they're going to do it. And baseball's just refusal to discipline this or punish it or, you know, regulate it in any way has put them in the position that they are now. And it's absolutely terrible. Um, I think the they need to, one, listen to the players, the pitchers who are expressing all of this stuff. And even the hitters, I'm sure, would let them do a little bit of that sunscreen rosin mix that they've been doing for years. Get rid of the spider tech, fine. But now you have umpires who are also trying to be science teachers and like decipher what is foreign substance and what is not. It's just yeah, I saw in the Jeff Passan piece that they're not even teaching them which substances to look for and how to tell what just, something is. It's just a blanket ban. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So Major League Baseball handling this about as poorly as could possibly be is just extremely classic Major League Baseball. And I mean, I guess I, I didn't play baseball at a super high level, but to understand those who maybe didn't play baseball through their youth, the little bit of nuances, obviously every pitch has a little bit of a different grip, right? You have to hold the seams differently in order to get different spins. But what you don't really realize is that you're putting extremely specific pressure points on the tips of your fingers, right? In order to get that snapping action. So imagine 
throwing a ball with relaxed fingers, you know, you can do that. You're now put your press your middle finger and your thumb together as much as possible and do that. And you can feel in your arm that your muscles are changing, right? Like just by fixing that grip in your fingers, you will feel differences down your elbow. And so I can completely understand what Glass now is saying is I'm squeezing the life out of this baseball now in order to get the exact pressure points that I'm looking for. And so that is creating muscle tension down my arm. Now my elbow hurts because I'm not getting that aid of the sticky stuff to allow me to grip the baseball in a certain way, to spin it in a certain way. Like there's In baseball, you're doing so many small and niche uh, actions and pressures on your body. You can't switch it up like that. That's why like oblique injuries are so common. It's just like one little tweak in that swing and you're going to have a whole problem in your back. So I completely understand the fact that major league baseball, it has to listen to the pitchers or I'm afraid it's going to be one of those things where pitchers are going to go down with sore elbows and sore shoulders. We're already seeing it happen. It's classic major league baseball, just handling it terribly. It's going to make great theater. I think it's going to give us plenty to talk about. I mean, it's just like the steroid era, right? Like turn a blind eye towards it until someone makes a big enough issue towards it that you have to then, react to it but classic major league baseball reacting to it in the most extreme and just worst way possible that's going to cause safety issues to their players it's just absolutely wild that major league baseball falls into that trap once again it's crazy it's crazy let's uh let's talk about more fun aspect of major league baseball the most fun you and i are having right now with the with the cincinnati reds on a bit of a tear 35 and 31 uh just gutting through some of these games and gutting me last night on the under pick eight and a half with the uh, with the old San Diego Padres. They go up four two in the top of the ninth and then give up a walk off home run to Victor Caratini. But we're not going to let that dampen the spirits coming off of a six game win streak and a amazing stretch over the past uh, past 15 games or so ever since the Philadelphia Phillies game was postponed coming off that 17 to three loss path. They've rattled off four in a row and six in a row in different stretches and I've lost just three times over that run. I've loved what I've seen out of the offense, but the the pitching especially has been much better, specifically the bullpen which has allowed this team to hold on to some of these leads and carry it through all the way to the finish line. It's been so much fun and it's a team that just fights. The Reds have spirit. They seem to enjoy going and playing baseball together. They enjoy the tense moments. And that game last night, the ups and downs it was it was a brutal India game. Homer, a perfect example of that fight right there. Yeah, it was a brutal game to lose. But for so many years, we watched Reds teams just roll over and die, lose that game two to nothing. No fight, no spirit, and they'll come out the next day. But the fact that that team with rookies fought to three two counts, there was energy. They felt the crowd. It was really a playoff game, and it felt it feels like a losing streak. It feels like a playoff loss. That's not a playoff loss, and I feel like those are all incredibly positive things it's all about how they react to it now right are they gonna let this drain their energy or is this one of those sort of resurgence like a recharge in the whole goal you you get that tough one out of the way it feels like a loss and a win it'll be fascinating to see how they play but they are so much fun the bullpen is still uh, just terrible I mean they are without their best reliever right now TJ Antone but the excitement that they have with Hunter Green coming up who hit 104 in AAA last night had I talk about ups and downs do you think they'll bring him up for a pen, a pen stint to start his team, career? Or do you think they're going to want him to be a full-on starter from day one? So that this team, uh, if they're deep enough, they have to utilize the best players in the organization for the Cincinnati Reds, right? So it makes sense that they bring him up. They do. It seems like a Reds thing that they like to bring up pitchers to be starters if they have been starting. Lorenzen came up as a starter. Garcia Iglesias came up as a starter. Amir Garrett, I believe, started a little bit. Uh, yeah, you, so you've seen it. Starter. You've seen it a little bit. So I can imagine Hunter Green coming up, and maybe they move Vladimir Gutierrez or Tony Santion, one of the other rookies that they brought up, move them into the bullpen. You see Jeff Hoffman, who had starts early in this year, and then Green gets that gets the start just to keep him comfortable and not change up his routine. That being said, they have to be creative in one way or another. Like guys who can throw the ball well, they need them to put them on the mound and throw the ball well for him. Because their lineup is um, awesome. I, I feel Jonathan India, I get so many like Brandon Phillips types of vibes from him. I think as he grows a little bit more, he'll get some strength, hit for more power. He's great in the field. He's electric. He's got that swag and energy. 
Uh, it's just like a really, really, really fun team. And I'm extremely excited because they've been dealing with, you know, Vado missed time. Eustakis has been hurt. Senzel was hurt. Akiyama missed time. Aquino was hurt. Uh, Sonny Gray has been on the shelf. Luis Castillo has been the worst pitcher in baseball. All these things can only get better. And so if you imagine any positive steps on those, this Reds team could be really fun down the wire. And I think they look like one of the better they a lot of the roster looks like the best team in baseball and the bullpen is fixable that's a good thing is a bullpen is fixable you can go get arms for not too expensive so i think it's it's an incredibly exciting time to be a reds fan it's it's been a fun year and at least it's a fun entertaining team i, I can't say enough about that with you on that and you got you know Sinzel hopefully coming back what right around all-star break something like that and then uh, Moustakis should hopefully be back in the next couple of weeks as well. And with Hunter Green moving up the AAA this week, getting that process rolling, he could be a uh, one of those classic so, uh, August call-ups or, or, or even late July if he continues shredding that. If he starts shredding that league like he shredded with the Chattanooga, Chattanooga lookouts. So why it's so important that Hunter Green went to AAA is this year you cannot call up players from AA. Uh, that used okay. to be like one thing. So you have to be on the AAA roster. It's a COVID thing because they have all these code regulations to keep that all clean. And so that was a huge step in Hunter Green availability to the Cincinnati Reds down the line. It might not happen, but it definitely gives us some hope that it could. And talk about what he did. He hit 104, uh, struck out eight hitters in four innings, gave up four hits, all four of them home runs. So a lot of ups and downs. <laughs> if you run into a green ball, it's probably going to be good for you. <laughs> so a lot of ups and downs, a lot of challenging hitters for Hunter Green. But love to see it. I mean, to hit 104, to be he, he's going to be potentially the best pitcher in all of baseball at some point in his career. And so lots lot to be excited about. The uh, That's what they're just going to call him the green machine. Either he's printing himself money or he's printing the batter's money with uh, all the go. home runs that you catch off of him. Very exciting times to be a Reds fan. 35 and 32. They're picking up steam. They're keeping things rolling. Only three games back of the Chicago Cubs as they jockey back and forth with the Milwaukee Brewers. Should be a very exciting NL Central race. Pat and I will be all over it the rest of the summer and into the fall. We'll be keeping a close eye on Hunter Green as he hopefully, fingers crossed, is in a Reds uniform pitching at GABP very soon. Maybe Pat and I will have to uh, – what to be at that first Ooh. debut game. That's got to oh, yeah. happen. I want to go to that for sure. All right. For Mr. Fetch, I'm Russ Elman. It's been a fantastic ride in the 3 by 3 Friday edition. Everybody have a great rest of your weekend. We'll catch you next week with all of the continued NBA playoff action. And I'm sure there's going to be news from the MLB and NFL to boot. For Mr. Fetch, I'm Russ Elman. Have a great weekend, everybody.